Welcome everyone to this, uh, another of the webinars in the Chess COVID-19 series. This one's called, Where Have All the Personnel Gone? I'm Steve Simpson, I'm your host for the afternoon. I am the past president of CHEST and, uh, and a professor at the University of Kansas in pulmonary and critical care. I'm going to go around the circle here and ask people in the order that I have them to introduce themselves. And so, Dr. Good, would you please introduce yourself? I am Vicki Good. I'm past president of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, currently serve as an executive director of nursing in a level one trauma center in Missouri. Thank you. And Dr. Burry, to you, please. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Burry. I'm a uh, clinical pharmacy specialist in Toronto, Canada, and as well as a clinician scientist. Thank you. Vikram, or Dr. Mukherjee, I'm sorry. Well, thanks, Chief. Hi, everyone. I'm Vikram Mukherjee, intensive care physician at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, where I serve as the MICU director. Thanks for having me uh, here. Yeah, thanks for being here. And Dr. Mitchell. Hi, my name is Steve Mitchell. I'm an emergency physician, actually. I work at Harborview Medical Center in the University of Washington in Seattle. And throughout the pandemic have uh, been uh, founded and uh, been running a service called the Washington Medical Coordination Center, which load balances patients throughout the state of Washington and tries to uh, uh, achieve better access because of a lot of the staffing issues that are going on. Outstanding. Outstanding. Thank you all for being here. Um, obviously, it's a tremendous pleasure to have you. I'm going to lead off just for a second with some, uh, some information and some background on our topic for today, which is about our personnel and, and where we stand today. Uh, these data that I'm showing you are from a website called Health System Tracker that is co-sponsored by the Peterson Foundation and the Kaiser Family Foundation, um, and they have collected data on this exact topic over a long period of time. What we're showing you here on this graph in the red line is the growth of jobs in the healthcare sector starting in January of 1990. On the blue line, we're showing growth and or sometimes not growth of jobs in the uh, non-healthcare sectors. And these are all for the United States. Uh, you can see that for that nearly two decade period, beginning in January of 90, that healthcare jobs were on the rise, growing faster than jobs in other sectors of the economy until we get over here to January of, of 2020, uh, when there's a sudden drop off. And I think we, you are likely aware that what happened in January and February, March of 2020, was uh, that a lot of hospitals had to go into lockdown uh, to not quite uh, go into crisis standards, but to go into surge capacity for sure. Uh, we're not able to do elective procedures and many, many hospitals chose to furlough their uh, personnel, both doctors, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, you name it. And so there was a tremendous drop-off. Meanwhile, in the general economy, there was also a tremendous drop-off as things shut down. And you all remember when things did shut down for a period of time in the U.S. Both of these, the healthcare and the non-healthcare sector, have begun to grow. The non-healthcare sector has grown back better and faster than the healthcare sector in that period of time. In fact, if we extrapolated those growth lines uh, from 1990 out through now 2022, uh, we are currently sitting below where we would have been in terms of the number of personnel in our hospitals and health centers of various types, all the way from outpatient to hospitals. In the hospitals, which is what we're concerned with today, we're about 4% lower than where we should have been had we maintained our steady growth. The people that are hit the hardest, and we might as well point this out, are our skilled nursing facilities and long-term nursing care, as well as our community care facilities for the elderly. People have been quitting their jobs too. Now, interestingly enough, I, I found it fascinating when I looked at this line here, you can see that, that uh, for the first part, um, so what happened, a bunch of people quit at first, 
then came back and stayed steady. But as we got into the year of 2021, after we kind of made it through that first year, people started looking around and and thinking, uh, not only in healthcare but in other jobs. I think I think it's time for me to look for something else to do, and that continues to be on the rise. These data are through November of 2021, and there's no leveling off to this graph, as one can see out here to the right. But we are losing jobs at a slightly faster rate in the healthcare sector than in other sectors of the economy. Um, Meanwhile, in order to help combat that, our hospitals have been paying more. Um, and we all know, I think, the stories of how much our locums nurses and our locums doctors are being offered to come and help out in places that are very tight. And that has bled over to uh, rising wages uh, probably out of necessity, we all know. And I, if, if you're a healthcare administrator, I'm kidding with you now, but we all know that our administrators don't ever like to raise our wages. So th this clearly must be out of necessity. Now I'm going to hop out, going to hop out of the uh, slides here. And we're going to talk for a while about these things and what its impact is on us now and into the future. And I'm going to start with, with uh, Vicki. And Vicki, would you, would you talk to us a minute about what you have seen, perceived, and, and read and written about uh, in the nursing aspect or the nursing field? Yeah, I think um, a lot of the nursing shortages really were starting pre-pandemic. Um, and what I've certainly seen in, in talking to experts across the United States is COVID was kind of an accelerant um, or a gasoline on the fire, um, if you will, of that exodus, you know, that we have seen in nursing. So, you know, part of that has been a natural exodus with a lot of our baby boomer nurses getting to that age where, you know, hospital work is hard work. Um, it's physically demanding work and, you know, they've had to step back for, you know, reasons of aging um, and so moving towards retirement. But then we've also seen a tremendous number of our younger nurses um, not only leave their job, but leave their profession. Um, and so many of them got into the field not fully appreciating what they were getting into. Um, you know, we saw clinicals for our nursing students get shut down during COVID. And so they didn't get that realistic view of what they were getting into. Um, and then once they come into the hospital setting and said, this is not what I signed up for. So, you know, one of the things that we've really seen is kind of that experience, um, experience complexity gap is what some people are calling it, where, you know, we have lack of experience of the nurses that we do have left. Um, whether that's physical experience of, you know, their, their career experience or whether it's just experience within your healthcare facilities. So speaking to all the traveling nurses that are coming into facilities um, and compare that to the complexity of the patients that we've seen creates this gap where, you know, nurses aren't able to handle the burden. I think the other thing that really needs to be pulled out into this conversation too is the large number of ancillary personnel that also chose to leave during the pandemic. And so we see things like extreme shortages in respiratory therapy, laboratory personnel, and other personnel. And what tends to happen is, unfortunately, is that nurse is the one that's left at the bedside. So not only are they trying to provide nursing care, they're suddenly also trying to provide respiratory therapy care, um, laboratory care, and all the other aspects you know, EBS, um, food services, all those things that suddenly got put on the plate of the nurse that was already stretched thin, which made them be stretched even thinner. So, you know, how do we work our way out of this? I know we'll talk about that more later. Um, it's going to be a complex, um, you know, thing moving forward, but um, certainly there's lots of opportunity, you know, as we continue to recover from this situation. Yeah. Um, Vicki, do you have uh, an idea or even data, if you, if you have it, about whether this has been a bigger problem in ward nursing, ICU nursing, outpatient nursing, any of the above? 
Yeah, the American Nursing Foundation uh, Division of the American Nurses Association recently did a study um, and looked at the impact of COVID over these last two years. And what they did find is that, um, when you know, look at my notes here just a little bit, but when they looked at the role, 46% of intensive care or critical care nurses were reporting that they were feeling most emotionally insecure and most at risk for leaving the profession. And 46% of emergency nurses um, as well were in that same bucket. Mm. Um, the, the percentages do fall off when you look at medical surgical nursing and some of the other you know, operating room in those areas, but the largest impacted areas and I know certainly I've experienced that as I've been responsible for our ED as well as some acute care areas um, has been in our critical care and our emergency room setting. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to turn to uh, Steve for a second and say, Steve, have you have you noticed just in your own practices and your administrative uh, responsibilities a drop off in the numbers of nurses in your emergency departments? Yes, sadly, uh, uh, I, th- I really appreciated Lisa's comments because they, I think they uh, reflect what's going on on the micro level uh, that I've experienced and the macro level. And so I, I work clinically in a, you know, a level one urban tertiary center, Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. And since the start of the pandemic, uh, we've lost roughly 50% of our nurses. We used to have a very stable workforce. Uh, about 6 or 7% per year might transition through. And that, was, that would be a, a high level. But we've lost roughly 50% of our staff of nurses and assistants, medical assistants, since that time. And so... Um, I have a constant mantra around the loss of institutional memory uh, for that is represented as people leave. And where have they gone? As I've, we sort of try to do exit interviews and the themes are very common. I'm, I'm, I'm going to retire. We've had a few of those, but we've uh, primarily, I think, reflecting some of the levels of burnout and exhaustion and stress that Lisa communicated which I think is quite real. Uh, many have just chosen to go to another type of work or um, for the emergency medicine nurse, it's they go to the PACUs or they go to clinics and uh, less positions that are seen as less stressful. And, and so with that, we have, like, some, like everybody else, essentially, we have had to hire a high, high number of uh, temporary traveling uh, nurses um, and I've gone through all of the different uh, challenges associated with training and, and getting them up to speed and making sure they are consistent with our policies and procedures at a time when our uh, volumes are just really unprecedented. I know a lot of urban centers in, in the United States are, uh, are experiencing what we have, which is like, for instance, an increase in 30% in our penetrating trauma our number of people who are essentially most of them are gunshot wounds uh, um, um, that we've experienced coming through, uh, sort of reflecting the, the the volume of community stress that is represented in in places like our emergency departments, places like our critical care units, and um, and so on. On a macro level, uh, in my role, uh, helping to manage uh, kind of load balancing activities across our state of Washington. Uh, it's been just remarkably challenging. What's, what's, what's interesting has been, if I can say interesting, um, has been our structures that we've invested in, things like our trauma system, our stroke system, our STEMI system, have essentially kind of maintained their functioning at a reasonable level. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's the next level down, the things like the urgent patient who needs an ERCP or a GI doctor or transfusion services, we have um, uh, I've had to move patients around our state because the hospital ran out of blood because of transfusion support has not been able to supply uh, things like that to them. And so it seems like a never ending game of whack-a-mole has been occurring mm-hmm. for all of us as we uh, kind of go through our different re- or engage in our different roles and responsibilities. Um, yeah. And let me ask you this. So, so I have a son who will be interviewing in um, 
emergency medicine in the fall, you know, for residency slots. Um, and so I sent him a little graph the other day that showed that emergency medicine physicians were uh, among the most susceptible to burnout. Um, and, and of course, as a critical care doc, I was going, you sure you want to go into that high stress <laughs> <laughs> position? Um, but, uh, but just uh, so has there been a similar effect among physicians? Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually more familiar with uh, data in the nursing uh, world. And I know uh, several of us on, on this webinar are participating in a, another project lurking, looking at burnout and resiliency amongst the healthcare workforce. But, um, but uh, in, so more anecdotally, uh, absolutely, in, in my situation, emergency physicians are being asked to do more and more What's kind of representative of that was a uh, was a conversation I had when our state American College of Emergency Physicians leadership got together, and somebody brought up the point that we need to start a fellowship in waiting room medicine because the occupancies have been so massive across not only in the kind of classical county such scenarios like my shop, but in all of the different community sites to where. They are doing more and more of their care in the waiting room because that's the only opportunity they have to interface with the patient as they arrive. And so that is leading to remarkably high levels of stress and burnout and, and uh, all the associated uh, challenges with that. And so we've seen that uh, an increase in retirements, um, but, um, uh, but fortunately in my shop, we have, we have not, uh, but across the spectrum, we have certainly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lisa, you are uh, both an academic and a practicing pharmacist. Um, tell us how this has affected uh, the pharmacy personnel. So as a, a practicing researcher, my research was suspended immediately upon, and I became 100% redeployed. And I think many of us that were in these types of roles were 100% redeployed um, Frontline, and now it's the piece of picking up uh, from where we left off, or we tried to maintain our other hat while we were still being redeployed, which essentially meant mental burnout. Um, I want to add on to Vicky's point. Well, I, I don't think that we're seeing a exodus of pharmacists uh, at this point. I think what we will see is it may be differences where people end up when they graduate. Um, what pharmacy students were exposed to during the pandemic, they lost pieces of their hospital practice rotations. Um, the fear and the exposure to what a, a hospital pharmacist or an ICU pharmacist was exposed to will potentially change people's mindsets about where they might go after graduation. So I think we may not see that trickle effect from that for a couple of years till people are maybe our applicants for residency and so on will will um, downgrade. I think you will see changes of where pharmacists want to be. Critical care pharmacists was essentially one of the top ranking areas that a pharmacist might want to go into because the applicability of pharmacotherapy is so intense in this area. It, it really draws a very academic um, mindset to go to that area. I think during the pandemic, we saw the intensity of the workload for that person grew astronomically. So normally there are benchmarks about having one ICU pharmacist for roughly every 12. Um, none of us maintain that ratio in that time set. Well, it's fine to maintain, you know, for a period of time, double the number of patients. What I don't think was really accounted for and many of us struggled with was the nurse wasn't the same nurse we were used to dealing with. So the nurse was now a redeployed nurse who did not have the valuable experience that we relied upon every day. So we were not only trying to do manage more patients, but we were also trying to support a very novice uh, user with potentially, well, drugs that are essentially labeled as high risk mm -hmm. and where most of us have quite a bit of anxiety, the need to triple check um, really propagated uh, anxiety and, and stress, uh, essentially leaving and coming home at the end of the day 
how many mistakes did I miss today? Or um, what did I miss? Or, you know, I couldn't help everybody manage their drug therapy today. I obviously miss things. So I think the trickle effect from other professions, knowing that the nurse is the crux of this, other professions were trying to support that. And, and I think there may be a, a non-measured stress related to that. Um, and I also think the job security, I mean, is quite stable for a pharmacist and it's not as onerous physically like what a nurse would experience. It's, it's pretty much very cerebral. And, and we do struggle in North America with a tech shortage. So you were often pulling pharmacists away from the bedside. So you may have double the patients, you have nurses that need your support or junior doctors that are man managing patients that they, know they don't normally um, write prescriptions for. And now we still have to get drugged to patients. So the basic skill set for a pharmacist or a pharmacy department is drug must get to patient. And if drug doesn't get to patient, we have to rejig who's doing what so that the drug is compounded and prepared. So, so that's interesting. I had not thought about the role of the pharmacy technician. Now, did you lose technicians during, we, during the... We have had a shortage of technicians like nurses before um, the pandemic. There have been changes in their... Uh, training programs and accreditation, which wasn't there previously. Um, and they are the crux of who compounds. I mean, uh, personally, most pharmacists don't compound anything. You train, you learn how to do it. But in the past 20 years, that tech is all, that's completely done by a technician. If there's no technician to make the TPN, we either are not making the TPN or we're going to redeploy a pharmacist to go and make it. And we have certain areas within the institution which we would deem mandatory. Mm -hmm. So you must have TPN assigned to pharmacist and technician. You must have it related to oncology. So if oncology is still continuing all of this um, and anything related to the ICU and anesthesia. So, you know, if you don't have a sufficient tech, we still have to make the drug. So you're going to pull people from frontline services, clinical activities to go back to what we would say is our, you know, basic activity that has to happen. And yeah. most of us, most institutions wrote, um, so to speak, pyramids of care related to, you know, if this, there was this volume of patients or this shortage of staff, we will pull back and scale back to the point that we would just operate as a basic dispensary. And there were times when that, when that has happened. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Uh, did you guys get hit as hard in, in your city as for example, Seattle or New York? I, I mean, I think on a smaller scale, but, yeah. but yes, we had significant waves where we were running triple the number of ICU beds and, um, triaging patients, as Steve mentioned, mentioned about around the province and being a very large geography means it's quite complicated moving patients, you know, nine to 10 hours um, to right. the, um, it's more like, I would say more like the um, central states in Montana and, and Minnesota, where you can have larger geography, weather is a problem. Um, yeah, it's not easy, not easy to manipulate. Yeah. But yes, we did struggle with that. Yeah. And we, we as a pharmacy, an ICU pharmacist in, in Canada is relatively small. There's not that many of us. And we end up forming networks of you know, WhatsApp group chats to support people in different areas um, um, because we weren't used to um, uh, moving patients around so much. Wow, 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 good. All right, Vikram, speaking of being on the hot spot, you, uh, you were the uh, ICU director at Bellevue, right? <laughs> Um, there's a, there probably wasn't any hotter spot in the U.S., although Seattle came pretty darn close. Um, tell us about tell us about um, your experience with physicians, ICU personnel in general. There. Uh, thanks, Steve. Um, and I can't believe it's almost been two years since uh, you know we got hit in New York and got hit so bad as the epicenter. Um, I just want to echo what Vicky was mentioning about our ICU nurses. You know. Uh, I feel that the pandemic was the straw that broke the camel's back. 
our ICU nurses, probably all across the country, were extremely strained, probably under-recognized, and did the brunt of work for the patient. They're in the patient's room for 10, 12 hours a day while the physician's around for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and procedural uh, requirements, of course. And um, even during our pandemic, when uh, experience here in March, April 2020, when we didn't know about the routes of transmission, when the science behind the pandemic was still unclear, it was, an, it was the nurses who still led the way fearlessly here at Bellevue. Um, I do feel that, you know, the consequences of such heroism are not uh, minimal. And this is what we are seeing in terms of, uh, you know, nurse attrition, in terms of the nurses recognizing that, you know, putting your lives at the forefront when the reward might not be justified is, is not worth continuing in this profession. I mean, you showed the data, Steve, that more than 30% of healthcare workers who died in that first year were nurses. So it just shows that they bore the brunt of the pandemic and they continue to do so. And so I feel that this is essentially a wake-up call for healthcare workers, executives, the entire system to reorchestrate what role the nurses play, um, what, how they're reimbursed, because absolutely they're the backbone of any ICU and any healthcare system. So just want to echo what Vicky said there. Um, on the physician front, you know, attrition has been a little lower. Um, we haven't had a lot of uh, people leaving our ICU or physicians leaving the ICU. But what I do worry about is, uh, the healthcare resiliency and the healthcare worker burnout that we are going to see in the next few years to come. Uh, I think nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, physicians do a great job hiding their uh, loss of resiliency, their burnout, and continuing because that's what patients require. But I think the expense that this does show will last us a long time. And there's no question that half my physician colleagues here uh, even if they admit it or not, have gone through periods of burnout, PTSD, and even depression and so on. So I think that is something that systems have to be looking out for intentionally as the next year goes forward. Thank you. Fascinatingly, um, in these last couple of years, and I'll, I'll let all of you maybe comment about how this has affected you, but, but the applicants for Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship have really gone very high. Um, you know, so the applicant pool is substantially larger than it was before the pandemic. So obviously, uh, Vikram, people like you have done a great job of being great examples for young folks coming up. I'm uh, kind of curious, Vicky, do you know anything at all? Like are, are, are younger people who haven't had this experience still wanting to go into nursing now? Yeah, I think that's a kind of a surprising and a welcomed um, thing out of this is what we are seeing is our nursing programs are rebounding quite nicely. Um, most of them are full um, and have wait lists for people to get into. So the, the younger generation, the Gen Z population, if you do much research, really have an altruistic heart and want to do want to be in a profession where they can give back. Um, and so that speaks to the healthcare profession um, greatly. So we are seeing that. I think the, the challenge that we're seeing in you know, nursing training programs is having faculty. Um, because that experienced nurses, you know, aren't there to pick up that faculty burden. And, you know, as most of us are quite aware, um, faculty positions are not very lucrative and um, it's hard to attract. So I know there's um, several programs across the United States. I'm certainly working with several of our universities on some shared positions um, to help with that burden of, you know, that clinical training um, moving forward. But, but yes, we are seeing quite the rebound. Um, now it's how do we keep them in yes. and what do we need to do to make sure that the environment is one that retains those people as they come back into the profession. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Steve, what about emergency medicine applicants? You know, the, I think the emergency medicine uh, application rate is similar to critical care. We've uh, not seen a drop off, thankfully. Um, on, and, uh, and so, I, I, I'm concerned less on the professional side, on the, on the, the, uh, the medical students who are pursuing medicine as a career, and they've looked at that. It's, the, it's, it's all of the, 
the nurses and the ancillary staff that uh, uh, really, I, my opinion is where we need to focus uh, within the world of emergency medicine and, and, and others. And so it's, it's building resiliency at that level and looking at all of the structures that it takes to make medicine operate. And you had, Steve, you had mentioned uh, the reality in post-acute care. And if I was to, to uh, emphasize one part of the healthcare continuum, it would be that post-acute care structure because um, you know, they're not participating in our, in our forum, but, uh, but I know their voice would be quite loud in saying what we are we have been impacted and yet their voice is not as quite as loud as those who work in the hospital. And that has led to a trickle down impact on all the rest of us and has made exacerbated every, all the conditions that are going on in the hospital. So, but right. in emergency medicine specifically, we're, you know, our, we're, we're continuing to draw great applicants. Yeah. So we are very fortunate. Yeah. 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 You know, interestingly, my, the same son is in the middle of an MPH year right now. And, and public health was actually a difficult, he had the inside track being a medical student going to do it, but public health applications have gone uh, off the charts as well. So it is fascinating what this pandemic has done. Lisa, I don't know if you if you are a part of the residencies or, or applicants to pharmacy school or not, but do you know anything along those lines? So our, our faculties are full. So our, our, we have whatever number of seats are generally filled um, and our residencies are the, are the same or also full, but our numbers are quite tiny. So I don't know if we will see the same impact. What I think will be different is where people end up when they finish. There may be yeah. selection like we routinely hear. I don't want to go to the ICU. That's scary or scarier, I may pick to go to a different clinical service. So while the profession may be full, it may be different where people land or where you can convince people to go and fill within the institution. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a feel for what this may or may not have done to folks like retail pharmacists? I have personally haven't worked retail in maybe seven or eight years. I mean, most of us do some just to maintain practice license, which are community oriented license. Um, I think the workload on the community pharmacists in both Canada and U.S. has been extremely high. Yeah. Um, And things that have been shifted from clinics have been moved to community practice without necessarily the reimbursement or the support. So, for example, if they chose to move uh, testing to a community pharmacist, that was never part of the regular run of the mill process at a pharmacy. So now where are you getting the staff? Um, to run that. And now with changes of how you can access different frontline medications for uh, COVID, or maybe that'll change even other things that we will get, is there going to be sufficient work to uh, personnel to support those activities? Uh, I'm biased when I say this, I would think that their workload in a community pharmacy is is atrocious. It's extremely high, it's quite variable. And uh, many things are being put on their plate that are being shifted from elsewhere without, in, without sufficient support. Right, right. That makes sense. You know, in my own state, fascinatingly enough, there is a bill going through the legislature that would force pharmacists to, to um, how do I say, to dispense certain anti-helminthic agents if they were prescribed. <laughs> that the law will say that you must do this. It's fascinating. And that's got to put a different, I know the pharmacists are not happy about losing that aspect of their judgment in my state. And yeah. So Vikram and Steve, you guys are both, both experts in uh, disaster management and, and workload adjustment and so forth in the circumstance. So, so, it's beginning to look like we are entering the endemic phase of this particular viral illness. Um, But let's say that we don't. Let's say there is another surge that comes up right now when we seem to be short on nurses and when the pharmacists are stretched. And and, uh, so how, 
how do you think we should go about balancing? I guess, Vikram, uh, I'll start with you first here. What, what do you think needs to be done in this circumstance if suddenly New York is hit with the, you know, who, the Zeta variant, let's yeah. call it? Thanks, Steve. And you're right. I mean, who knows when the next variant of concern will break through even a heavily vaccinated community like in New York. Um, I, I feel very strongly that an ICU bed is useless unless you have a staff to provide support to that bed. So we can make as many beds as we want, unless, but unless we have the staffing to support that bed is essentially useless. And if there was one of the things that might be topical today is, you know, like I was mentioning, to maintain healthcare worker resiliency, uh, systems need to change. Uh, some things that, that has worked in, you know, in warfare, such as a battle buddy system, and has been time tested there, uh, I feel should be incorporated from the get-go, not six months into the pandemic, but from the get-go, knowing that healthcare worker burnout is going to be principal to uh, functioning uh, staff. Tell and us I, a little about how that works, Vikram, the, the buddy system. So what's worked very well in the military, Steve, is you find a, a, a person who you can confide in and then essentially decompress in a very confidential manner. And that person then decompresses to you in a very confidential manner, a 15-minute check-in uh, in a week, in a two-week, but somewhat of a structured way of decompressing and just venting in the military has worked a long way. And, you know, we started using this a few months into the pandemic and it's worked. But if we had a second chance, we would have started this much earlier on right. one. Um, and then, you know, Steve and I have talked many times about how load balancing should be principal to disaster preparedness. And I would uh, leave it up to him to describe all the great work he's done on the West Coast. Sure, yeah, let's hear about that, Steve. Sure. I, um, so for, first off, I'll say I think load balancing is part of the solution, but it's not the entire, certainly it's not the entire solution. But, uh, but I think, uh, fun, you know, fundamentally, we we need to build resilient structures and we, we can't, so much of our healthcare system historically has been, has been essentially, uh, we, we point the patients in one direction. You know, they go to the, you know, to the facilities that can, you know, handle the really, really sick patients or the critical patients. And generally speaking, those are the tertiary, the quaternary centers um, that we are uh, all familiar with in our, in our region. But um but we've proven in this that uh, that those centers you, you, we can't we can't point all the patients in that direction. So we have to intelligently build the structures that that matches the patients with the appropriate facility. And a key premise of that is to not kind of oversend, if you will. Um, and so we've tried to in Washington State we've tried to really focus on on uh, knowing the capabilities of each of our intensive care units and our different facilities, and then to match the, 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 if that facility needs to move a patient, making sure they get to an appropriate facility, but, but not necessarily the one that can fix all of their problems. And so that's an important conceptual framework of, of load balancing that I think we need to work with. Or, or you know, develop within our you know different geographic areas we work work in, and I think importantly, what is the pandemic has shown us is that uh, there is significant value in cross health system communication, data sharing, agreements. We uh, you know we're we've all grown up in a competitive landscape, except except for Lisa and this, and this uh, <laughs> less so in Canada, but. Uh, um, but uh, you know, systems. Uh, what we have found is that many systems will load balance within their systems, but cross, you know, going from uh, system A to system B will not happen because of various either the ability to know and understand what is happening or just not shared agreements. And so, some area geographic regions um, have accomplished this, and I think that to. to uh, to a great degree, have it has benefited patients because of that load overall load balancing concept is allowed to to be accomplished. But um, uh, and 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 part of uh, do, doing the load balancing work, as I mentioned earlier, has just uh, made 
made me so much more aware of the areas of focus we we haven't paid much attention to that need resilience. And so as some of them have been mentioned here, but it's our respiratory therapy workforce, it's our hemodialysis workforce, it's our um, uh, it's uh, it's even a you know, GI workforce and develop systems where we can again match the right patient to those systems that have capacity, and and so there's work going on at the federal level to try and accomplish that and build that sort of resiliency. And I think uh, all of us, if we can lend our voice to that, it's important. But I don't think this is the entire solution at all. Really, it's part of the solution, but part of it is just building resilience. It starts at home and, and works to your system and then works to the larger geographic region uh, beyond that. And, and so I would just encourage everybody. Uh, now, as, as I'm just, I'm, I'm literally stunned that our COVID hospitalization numbers, I checked just before I came on this morning. And, um, and so now is the time when we're all looking at doing after action reports and planning. And so now is the time to try and utilize the, as we, after our vacations that we all need to uh, uh, really begin to focus on building that resiliency and because we have an opportunity because we certainly know that the next challenge is just around the corner, but we have a little bit of window to, uh, of time to prepare. Wow. Yeah. Just around the corner. It's hard knowing. <laughs> you know? yeah, isn't it hard knowing? Yeah. Um, Hey, a little history on me. I was uh, I was a young attending in New Mexico when we discovered the hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. Oh had our ICUs full of potential hantavirus patients before we had any notion whether it was uh, whether it was infectious from human to human or not, um, and so started hanging out with special pathogens, people from the CDC and that sort of folks at that time and kind of had been waiting for this for 20 years. And, and then it showed up. And to be honest, it, it, was, it was less deadly than what I had feared. <laughs> you know, uh, because those guys, I mean, they were the Ebola guys and, and they, were, um, they, they were predicting dire things. And, and they, they, this was dire. But at least the mortality rate was not 25%, you know, like it could have been. Um, we're coming up on about 45 minutes of airtime. So I think what I'm going to do is just, uh, just first off, something that I forgot to say at the very first uh, to all of you is if any of you has questions of anyone else, please feel free to ask them. And, and so if anything has come up that you want to know about before we, before we sign off, uh, please do. But, but I think I'll just go around and see if anyone has any final words. Actually, just before I do that, I almost forgot. I do want to show this for everyone. As of April of 2021, there have been 3,600 healthcare worker deaths just in the first first um, year of this pandemic. And as Vikram mentioned, the hardest hit of all were the nurses at the bedside um, here, but people were hit, uh, certainly in our population, out of proportion. People of color were affected out of proportion to their um, their proportion of the general population in the U.S. And this is just the U.S. deaths. I'm sorry, Lisa, I don't know about Canada. Um, this is more for those of you who, who aren't aware of this. This is about 50% more than the number of soldiers who died in Afghanistan in the 18 or 19 years that we were there with our military in, in that country. Uh, the hardest hit states, uh, as you might imagine, up here in the corner where Vikram lives, uh, was, was among the hardest hit, Florida, of course, uh, Texas. Um, but I just think it's worth pointing out that this, um, this may have something to do with why people were leaving. I suspect if you have a coworker who has died from being at the bedside, of someone with this illness, it probably weighs heavily on you. But I just wanted to bring that out uh, while we're discussing this about our personnel. Um, and uh, physicians, by the way, were not immune to this either. So, so any of you pulmonary and critical care docs who are watching, 
Uh, Vicki, I'm going to start with you. Let's let's go around last and see if there are any last thoughts about anything that you've heard today or didn't get to say that you wanted to. Yeah, I think, um, you know, just looking at recovery and a couple of key points is, you know, I think we have to look at our models of care in the future. Um, you know, I know for speaking for the nursing profession, many of our models were developed in the 1990s. And nobody's really looked at those models and said, are they the correct models, you know, going forward? So I think there's several of us across the United States starting to look at that and say, you know, is this the right model of care to carry us forward? Um, you know, I think the other thing is, is we have to look at alter alternative um, compensation models for nursing. And I think that's one thing that's been very clear and very evident with the travel nursing um, phenomena that we've seen and, and the large number of nurses leaving to do that lucrative work. Um, so I know a lot of places are looking at that, you know, how do we develop alternative comp models um, for the nursing profession? Um, and then I think we have to look at that whole component of burnout and how do we solve for that? Um, and, you know, how do we get nurses away from the bedside for short periods of time, you know, a sabbatical type, um, format where they can leave the bedside for a short time so they can take a break. Um, I heard somebody talk about the fact that, you know, military, when they send people to the battleground, they, they only send them for short periods of time. Um, and then they pull them back off the battleground, let them recover, let them develop, you know, use those resiliency skills. But we've never done that um, throughout this pandemic for our, our frontline providers, whether it's a nurse or a physician or respiratory therapist, we haven't given them that safe space to step back. So I think we've learned a lot of things through this pandemic that, you know, we're going to have to now take action. Um, but I think the other thing that we really didn't talk about is this has taken a huge impact on our leadership um, in our organization. So um, I've seen statistics on nurse managers um, and nursing directors saying that, you know, 60 to 70 percent of them are saying, I'm done. Um, and if you think about those positions and how key they are to providing the care moving forward, but the pressure they feel from the staff that they're taking care of, from administration pushing down on them, um, has become very um, significant throughout this. So just some closing thoughts as we you know, move to recovery, hopefully. Yeah, pretty sobering thoughts there. Um, Lisa, how about you? Just jumping on Vicki's point as we're moving into the recovery phase and we are thinking about the models of care, when we think back to the old models for pandemic planning or crisis management, there was no pharmacist in any of those tiered models that showed each bed, how many nurses, how many physicians. And so we've come to this point where we've included a pharmacist and as we move forward and readdress and think about what was needed, I would like to see that pharmacist and all the other individual allied healthcare members that kind of support that bed. So who is needed for the bed is, is assessed um, as, as well. And there's many of those that are what I would call ends of one one pharmacist for a unit, one dietitian, and, and what is needed to, to support the entire team and the, and the patient, and that needs to be factored into the models. Yeah, good point, excellent point. Um, Steve, what, what final words do you have? You think? Uh, I, would, uh, I would say that um, I would just encourage everybody to be, <laughs> how I think about it is be working be working at the uh, at the macro level, um, working on those on those systems. In my situation, I'm going to be you know working on those uh, low bouncing systems and uh, IT structures that allow us to see and do the work of matching the right patient to the right level of care. Um, and yet, and and while Lisa's working on things that are so important uh, around nursing and compensation, I really appreciate your 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 thoughts on nursing leadership as well. That's absolutely been our, what the experience we've seen time and time again. Uh, and the common thread in all of this is sort of what I would then distill down to say, all of us need to be working on the micro level too, is that all of us are people who are moving into these different positions at all levels of the healthcare continuum. And so if there's ever been an epi epidemic need for things like 
kindness <laughs> and gentleness and grace given to people because you never know what their story really is, especially coming out of this narrative of a pandemic. Boy, it's a what an opportunity it is. And so, you know, just encourage, you know, extending that sort of uh, 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 grace to people is, I think, incredibly important at this time. That's a really good point. You know, I just read a quote this morning. I don't even remember who it was, but it said all human behavior is either giving love or seeking love. And we should remember that about one another. Vikram? Uh, Thanks, Steve. And, you know, just echoing what the rest of the group said, two thoughts are, you know, I think this is the time when organizationally we think about retention as a prerogative. We work on keeping our staff uh, within in the jobs that they love or at one point used to love and focus on career development, focus on job satisfaction, intentionally focus on uh, ways to beat burnout and resiliency. Don't make it about the healthcare worker being burnt out, but about the structure and the systems that lead to burnout. And then the second big thought I have, you know, that 3,600 number in the first year is so impressive, Steve, is that, you know, if anyone is still on the hedge on vaccinations and getting their timely vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, uh, we all know that the data is almost more, is more than a year out that they phenomenally prevent ICU admissions and hospitalizations and deaths. So that 3,600 number should be a wake-up call that, yes, I can protect myself by getting a timely jab. So hopefully we'll keep that in mind going forward as well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I really want to agree with that. Um, as I showed to our panelists before we started here, those, those numbers, and I reported to you, those were in April of 2021, and I can't find any data since April of 2021. And my presumption is that by then, nearly all of our healthcare personnel had achieved uh, at least a couple of vaccines. Um, and that may be why uh, that, that diminished substantially. So that's a very poignant point. Um, and I think too, sitting back, sitting here in the seat, speaking with all of you, uh, hearing all of you, the, the thing that strikes me is that it's important for us to be prepared for the next one. Uh, the next one may not be a brand new virus that, that no one's ever seen or heard before like this one, uh, but it could be an influenza. Um, one knows not what's going to happen, and it may only be regional and not pandemic, but, but the time to prepare for that is now and to sit back, as Steve said, and, and do a, a post-action uh, assessment on where we stand and where we need to be. And the, and the other point that struck me, both as Lisa and Vicky said, was um, that, that burnout was rampant among our nurses and, and our pharmacists and probably more among our doctors than we even uh, know or that they are willing to admit. I think doctors you know, have that propensity amongst us. Um, but that was present even before the pandemic and, and it still needs our attention. It needs our attention at the baseline um, forever even well before we plan for pandemics. So I think this was some really good lessons. Now I, I, I'm gonna close out by saying it is such a pleasure to talk to all four of you guys. Um, I mean, your names, you probably know, you, you have reputations, great reputations, all four of you. And it's been a real pleasure for me to be with you this afternoon. So uh, to our audience, thank you for tuning in. Um, I hope you've learned something um, and I hope there are some lessons that you can carry forward. And until our next webinar, uh, we will sign off. Again, I'm Steve Simpson representing CHESS and goodbye everyone. <laughs>